Okay, we did Exodus 21, uh, the first 11 verses last week. So we're going to do verses 12 through 36. So read with me these verses. Exodus 21, verses 12 through 36. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts in premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If men contend with each other, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted." He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. If a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any one, if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horns in times past, and it has been made known to its owner, and he has not kept it confined, so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. Whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. And if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to the owner, but the dead animal shall be his. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then he shall sell the live ox and divide the money with it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times past and its owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall be his own. Father in heaven, as we've opened your word, 
as we've looked into the scripture, read the scripture, revealed by your spirit, the gospel to us, Lord, confined, written into every page of your holy scripture. Lord, by your spirit, illuminate this word. Let it be life to us. Let it change and transform us that we would be a people conformed to the glory of the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week we did the first 11 verses, and those 11 verses dealt with slavery. And remember what we said is sometimes we can read the Bible, and we can read it at face value, and much of the Bible we can read and take in and understand clearly at face value. There's other parts of the scripture that if you don't understand the context of the Bible, because remember the Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. So when we read the words of God, God is speaking to Moses or God is speaking to the children of Israel and he's speaking to them in the context that they're living in. Now, I say that, but I want you to understand something. The Bible does not change. God does not change. We don't have a God today who is more evolved or different than the God who spoke these very words to Moses. We're not a people spiritually evolving so that we believed some things at one point in time of our history, but now we know that that was old-fashioned, that was antiquated, that doesn't apply anymore, so we believe different things, and so the Bible becomes outdated, and we need to keep updating it to be consistent with our beliefs and our culture. No, that's a lie. That's what the world wants us to believe. So when we read, for instance, Exodus 21, and the first 11 verses deal with slavery, We need to understand the context of what God is talking about. We don't understand it from our imaginations. We don't understand it based on what the world tells us it should be or what popular culture tells us it should be. We need to understand it based on the context of the scripture, of who God is, who the people of God are, and what the reality of a sinful world is. And so this is... Continuing in Exodus 21, we read these verses and we need to understand them in the context in which they're written and see how do they apply to our life today. Is the Bible reliable for us today? The answer is yes, absolutely it is. And so really what our subject is today is the rule of law. And God has given the rule of law for our peace. The rule of law is for our peace. So as we go through, let's just look at these verses. Verse 12 talks about intentional murder. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Murder is punishable by death. There are some people today that say you can't be a biblical Christian and believe in the death penalty. No. God instituted the death penalty. We can absolutely be pro-life 
and pro-justice at the very same time. There is no inconsistency in saying, I am pro-life, I am absolutely against abortion, and I am pro-death penalty for those who commit the crime of murder and other capital crimes. There's not inconsistent. It wasn't inconsistent in the Bible. It's not inconsistent today. So you need to be really careful that you don't fall prey to the popular culture and the pressure of the popular culture. We need to be biblical Christians and stand in the courage of our convictions. So murder was punishable by death, verse 12. Verse 13 deals with accidental death. Accidental death, what if you're working and your axe head flies off the, the handle of your axe and it kills the guy next to you? He's died. There is a real death. Accidental death had the provision of a city of refuge. God, when he sent the children of Israel into the promised land, he had them build specific cities who were that were called cities of refuge. So that if you're working and your axe head kills the guy next to you, the judges will send you for an appointed amount of time to the city of refuge for your protection. Because in the culture back then, and in some cultures in the world still today, they have this thing, and you'll read about it, called the avenger of blood. And so if I'm working chopping wood and my axe head kills the guy next to me, his family would have a right to take my life by this thing called the avenger of blood. It's to protect me because I accidentally, I didn't maliciously kill someone, to protect me, the law was the judges will tell you how long you need to go to this city. You'll live in this city, you'll work in this city, you'll be provided for in this city. You, but, but if you leave that city and the protection of that city, if the avenger of blood finds you, the bad is on you because the law has made provision for your protection. You're not in prison, but you're in a safe place, a place of refuge. That was the provision under the law for accidental death. The city of refuge protected the manslayer from the avenger of blood as long as he remained in that city until his sentence was up. Verse 14 deals with premeditated murder, not just a crime of passion. Two men are having an argument and they become so enraged that one guy just in a crime of passion in a fit of passion, he kills the other guy. That guy is going to experience the death penalty under the law. Premeditated murder required the death penalty with no exception. So, with no exception, look what it says here. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So as you read the stories in the Old Testament, you'll see where men ran to the altar of God and they took hold of the altar of God because they were supposed to be safe at the altar. It's like people used to run into churches and they would 
remain in the church. And as long as they were in the church, the church was a place of sanctuary. The authorities couldn't come in and get somebody. But in premeditated murder, they were not, there was no place of refuge, not at the altar, not in a city of refuge. If you premeditatedly planned to murder someone through treachery, there was no protection for you. You must suffer what God says the punishment is, which is death. And there was no exception to this. Striking or wounding or killing father or mother was punishable by death. Kidnapping, to sell a person into slavery or to make them your own slave was punishable by death. So when you hear people say the Bible promoted the slave trade, absolutely not. The Bible forbids the slave trade. The Bible forbid the kidnapping of men and women for the purpose of selling them into slavery. The system of slavery that we had in our nation was an unbiblical system of slavery. And slavery is a word we don't like to use, but slavery is the word the Bible uses here. So kidnapping was punishable by death. Cursing father or mother was punishable by death. And we're going to just go through these verses and kind of, and then we're going to talk about what does all of this mean for us? God sounds kind of harsh, right? No, he's not. I promise you. He's not harsh at all. He's just. He's loving. Because as we read about these, as we discuss these, I want you to think about living in a world where there was no law, where there were no rules, where there is no authority, where there is no one, there's no 911 to call, there's no police to call, there's no ambulance to call, there's no fire department to call, there's no one but every man is doing what's right in his own eyes and might determines right. Do you know there are places on the earth today that that's the way people have to live? It's not right or wrong, it's might that determines right. Whoever is the strongest, whoever has the most guns and the greatest power makes the rules. We don't live in a country like that. We live in a country that is governed by the rule of law. What God is instituting here is the rule of law over his people. Look at verse 18 and 19. So 18 and 19 says, If men contend with each other, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. So this is two men fighting with one another. There's an implication here, there's an understanding here that these two men were in contention with one another. This wasn't some guy innocently walking down the street and someone just waylays him and starts beating him up. This is two men who have an issue and they begin to fight. And if they fight, and if they strike one another, and no one's hurt, okay. But if someone is injured, and he loses time on the job, or he has to pay a doctor, that person who injured him is responsible to 
compensate him for his lost time and his injuries. Verse 20 and 21 says, If a man beats a male or female servant and they die, he will be punished. What that means is he will, he will experience the death penalty because he's killed a human being. Now, this sounds really horrible if a man beats a male or female servant. Remember what we read last week as we talked about the system of slavery that the Bible presents to us. His punishment, if he kills his servant, is death. Or it could be some other punishment depending upon the circumstances and how they would fall within the law. And there's all kinds of scenarios. It's not ambiguous. You have judges who would look at each case. And if someone just beat their servant to death because they were cruel or mean, that person would be issued the death penalty. Verse 22 through 25. This is interesting. We're going to come back and talk about the implications of these. But look at this. 22 through 25 is about... It presents a scenario of two men fighting and a woman gets in between them trying to bring peace. Because why would a woman be involved with two men fighting otherwise? But it says, if there are two men contending with one another and a woman with child gets hurt, by these men fighting, so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows. He, the one who hurt the woman, who caused the injury, shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband imposed on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. So if she's with child and he forces a premature delivery, but no harm, no further harm is done, then the husband with the judges will determine what that man will have to pay to compensate for that premature delivery of the child and any injury to the woman. But if any harm follow, that would be death of the mother or death of the child, you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In other words, the punishment will fit the crime. So there was protection for the woman and her unborn child under the law. And if that unborn child was killed or injured in any way, there was a way for that to be provided for under the law so that people couldn't just go around harming people, killing people, beating people, maiming people, and there was, there was no justice there is justice. There is the rule of law. And it's not based on how much money you have. It's not based on your social status. It's not based on the color of your skin. It doesn't even matter if you're in servitude. And remember, those people that were slaves, they were either in servitude voluntarily by court order or restitution. They were paying back because they had stole something or took something that was not theirs. So these laws protected the mother, the unborn mother. In verse 26 and 27, these 
laws protected the slave from undue and harsh treatment. Now, in verse 26 and 27, the Bible mentions if you, if a servant loses an eye or if a servant loses a tooth. Now, what we might not understand is there is a contrast being shown here. The eye was to be, how many, how many of you, if you lose your eyes, you just go down to Walmart and buy you some new ones. No, you lose your eyes and they're gone. So the eye was precious. If you lost your eye, you lost your sight, and there was no way to get it back. So the mention here in this, this law protecting servants or slaves from undue and harsh treatment, the specific mention of eye and tooth indicate that from the least severe, that's the tooth. You lose a tooth, well, you might not want to lose a tooth, but, but losing a tooth isn't going to really hinder you in, in very many ways. Lose an eye, much more severe. And there's a contrast here from the least, from the least severe to the most severe form of maiming that could occur that would result from punishment or harsh treatment. And if someone was hurt in that way, intentionally maimed in that way, or even accidentally maimed in that way, they lost an eye or even a tooth, from the most severe to the least severe, they were to be immediately released from their servitude and their debt was to be forgiven. So whether the slave was in servitude voluntarily or by court order, they were protected under the civil law, and the expectation was that they would be treated as human beings with rights, even though they had an obligation and responsibility to those they served. The law was there to protect them. So I want you to understand that God has made provision that what we see in the history, in human history, what man has done is very often, most often, very different than what God prescribes. Verse 28 through 36 deals with laws concerning animals. Now you think, well, what in the heck does this have to do with me? I live in an apartment in the middle of town. I don't have any cows around me. Yeah, but remember, the Bible wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. But, but even though you might not walk out of your apartment door in, in fear being gored by an ox, it is possible you could walk out your apartment door and get bitten by a dog. And what do we do with that dog owner who lets his dog run loose who is known to bite and attack people. Where did we get our laws from? We got our laws from the Bible. That's where we got our laws from. That's why we have the laws we have today. They came from the Scripture. And so these verses 28 through 36, these laws concerning animals promoted public safety and personal responsibility to neighbors and to the greater community. They protected the public by penalizing irresponsible and negligent animal owners. So if the farmer knows that his ox is always thrusting and trying to gore people, but he doesn't do anything about it, 
and he lets the ox go work with the other guys and the ox gores his neighbor and kills him, guess what's going to happen? That ox is going to be killed and very likely that farmer will experience the death penalty because he did not, he did not do the responsible thing and get rid of or keep his animal confined but allowed it to be out where it could harm someone else. A willfully negligent owner was subject to the death penalty if his willful negligence resulted in his animal killing another person. And so the judges, you would have the leadership of the city, of the community, the elders, and they would look at these cases and they would determine, is there a history? Have you been warned? And based on, just like we do now, based on the case, they would make the determination. And if there was enough willful negligence, there was prescribed by God, yes, even the possibility that that farmer could be put to death because of his willful negligence. The death penalty could be commuted by the judges and a blood fine could be paid to redeem his life if the family of the victim said, you know what, this guy, this farmer is really a good guy. And for whatever reason, I know he didn't put that ox out there and he didn't intend for my loved one to be killed. We desire to show mercy. There, was, there could be a penalty, a fine issued. It was called a blood fine to redeem his life if the family of the deceased chose to show mercy. This is in verse 30. And this provision for a blood fine is the only place in the Mosaic law where the death penalty could be legally commuted for murder or accessory to murder if it was warranted. If the death penalty was warranted, this was the only place that it could be commuted. So we have all of these laws governing men and their violent actions, governing servants and the people they served and how those servants could be corrected or chastised just like children they were your children but you could not legally beat your children to death just like you can't legally beat your children to death today laws governing Women who are pregnant with children, should something happen and that child die or the woman die, there were penalties to be enforced to protect the community and the public. Even your animals, if you know your animals are mean, if your animals bite people, Keep your animals confined. If you know your animal is going to gore someone, keep your animal confined. If your animal gores another animal, the law makes provisions so that that person who loses their animal will be compensated. If you dig a pit to trap an animal, a wild animal that's killing your, your cattle and your neighbor's cow falls into the pit, there's a provision in the law to make sure your neighbor is taken care of. So God has established the rule of law. But we read these very often 
And we say, well, what does this have to do with us today? Because we live in a very different culture, especially here in America. Well, we do and we don't. It's different in a lot of ways, but it's not different in many ways. So God established and Jesus affirms the rule of law. So let's look at Exodus 21, 23, kind of as a point of reference. Verse 23 gives this principle of the law that's often quoted as a justification for revenge or retaliation. How many of you ever have heard an eye for an eye? Someone, you've heard someone say that. People say that and they don't even know it comes from the Bible. An eye for an eye. Yeah, it does. It comes from the Bible. But this verse can be applied out of context in an attempt to justify the sinful desires of wicked man. And that's not what God gave that verse for. This was not an endorsement for private revenge or retaliation. And that had become the custom during Jesus' time. So in Jesus' day, with the Pharisees, there was this understood principle. There was this accepted thing in their culture, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, because it was in the Scripture. And people can misinterpret the Scripture then just as they can now. So it wasn't an endorsement. This verse in Exodus 23 and Exodus 21 is not an endorsement for revenge or retaliation. And Jesus brings this back to its proper application when he quotes it in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. Jesus quotes Moses here. He quotes the scripture out of Exodus. Jesus says, You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. <clears throat> but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. <clears throat> so in these verses, Jesus addresses and affirms the rule of law. Now look at this. Jesus affirms criminal law. He affirms civil law. He affirms the law of occupation. <clears throat> and he affirms the law of love. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus is quoted and he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to abolish the law, that meant that anything in the law from what the verses we just read to homosexuality to, to, to anything that people want to say doesn't apply today, Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with that. I came to fulfill it. In teaching us not to resist the evil person and to turn the other cheek, Jesus is not telling us to let violators of the law go unhindered. He's teaching us to follow the rule of law and to trust that God will administer his justice now and ultimately. In teaching us to give up our tunic, the tunic was the inner garment. So right there, don't resist the evil person. This is criminal law. 
Don't go out and avenge murder yourself. There is the rule of law that will do that. And God will administer his justice now and ultimately. In talking about giving up our tunic, the tunic was the inner garment. So when the Bible talks about he was naked, it wasn't like you think about. It wasn't like just all skin. He had taken his outer garment off and he was just in his inner garment. That was, be, that was considered being naked. When David danced naked before the Lord, he took his outer garment off. He didn't take all of his clothes off and was out there for everyone to see like a nudist. That's not what that means. The inner garment was the least expensive of your clothing. Kind of like your underwear. You're not going to pay the same price for your undergarments as you, hopefully you won't, as you would, you know, a sport coat or ladies, your, your dress that you wear on the outside. The, but Jesus says, if someone sues you for your inner garment, give him your outer garment also. Oh, now wait a minute, Jesus. That outer garment is the expensive one. That's the one that's going to cost me. Took me a lot of months of work to be able to afford to buy this outer garment. And you're telling me this guy's suing me and I should give him my inner garment and my outer garment? Yes, that's what Jesus is saying. Now, in saying this, Jesus is not abolishing the civil court system. He's not teaching us that there should be no courts to, to sue people. He's teaching us that relationships are more important than things and that God can bring restoration if we trust him as we give witness to his free grace and his free mercy through our own actions and reactions. God was speaking to the children of Israel. He's talking to his people. He's telling his people how they're to, to govern themselves. Jesus is talking to his people. He's talking to the believers. Paul affirms this later on in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, hey, you guys are acting like the Gentiles. You're acting like unbelievers. You're going to court, suing one another. Don't you have judges among yourselves? Don't you have men who are wise elders who can help you settle your disputes? You're acting like the nations. You're going out there defaming the name of God. We are to be different than the rest of them. It's not that there's never a legal recourse that, that should be taken. So understand this. Jesus is not abolishing the civil court system. He's saying, look, don't just run to this. Don't just automatically defend yourself. Give, give the inner garment. Give the outer garment also. Now we'll get some clarity on this in just a moment. Then he says this. If someone compels you to go one mile, then go an extra mile. Go two. In teaching us to go the extra mile, Jesus is not endorsing unreasonable laws and ordinances imposed by tyrants. What that law was, the Roman government that occupied the land of Israel, the Roman government had a law that said any Roman soldier carrying his pack and his equipment could compel any non-Roman Roman citizens had rights, and you could not compel a Roman citizen to do this. But if you were a Roman soldier occupying a foreign land, or you were 
in the presence of slaves who were not Roman citizens, you could at any moment, based on your whim, say, hey, come carry my pack for me. And by law, that person would have to carry their equipment for at least a mile. And if you refused to carry it, you'd be put in prison. Probably beat mercilessly before you were put in prison. Jesus is saying, go the extra mile. He's affirming that the law is there to be not only obeyed, but obeyed in such a way and with such an attitude that it would give witness to God's grace and God's glory. He's not endorsing unreasonable laws and ordinances, but he's saying unreasonable laws and ordinances exist. He wasn't disputing that. Obey them, but don't just obey them. Obey, obey them with the right attitude to give witness to the grace and the glory of God. So this law, this Roman law was hated. It was a hated law. And to hear Jesus say, if he compels you to go a mile, go an extra mile, we can't imagine, because we don't live in that culture and we don't understand that context, we can't imagine the horror that the hearers of Jesus must have, must have felt when their Messiah, who they, who they are thinking is going to overthrow the Roman tyrants, tells them, hey, obey your Roman tyrants and not, not just go the mile, but go the extra mile with a good attitude. I promise you at that point, there were people questioning whether this could really be the Messiah because why would he be promoting obeying these laws. We're supposed to be fighting against these laws. But you see that Jesus did not cry injustice. Instead, he declared, carry it an extra mile and with a good attitude. And teaching us to give to one wanting to borrow and not turn them away, Jesus is not teaching us to enable people in their irresponsibility. He's teaching us to be genuinely caring and compassionate in assisting those in true need. If I know someone is a, an alcoholic or a drug addict and they come and ask me to borrow $10, I can guarantee you right now I will not give them $10. I won't do it. I will not give them cash money. Am I violating what Jesus said? Absolutely not, because Jesus and the scripture never promotes enabling irresponsible behavior. I would say, what do you need that $10 for? And they're going to tell me for something other than maybe what it's really for. Oh, I need it for food. Okay, let's go get you some food. I've actually done that before and had people, no, I don't want food. Well, you just said you wanted food. Well, yeah, yeah, I know, but I, I want to go get the food myself. No, I'll, I'll go get it for you. No, no, I, and get mad because I won't give them the money, but I'm offering them the food. What does that tell you? They don't really want the food. They want the money to go buy something they shouldn't be buying. So Jesus is not saying, if anybody asks, doesn't matter what they ask and why they ask, just give it to them. That's not what he's saying. We need to learn how to rightly divide the scripture. Jesus 
is not contradicting the law. He's affirming the rule of law and teaching us that there is an even higher law. It is the law of love. So God establishes and appoints authorities for our peace. So let's turn over to Romans chapter 12. And Paul affirms the very words of Jesus. And Paul affirms the very things that Moses is writing here in Exodus 21. Now look at Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. He is specifically addressing this concept, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Do not avenge yourselves, but give rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul is reminding us there is an authority higher than even the ruling authorities of the earth. And if they're corrupt and unjust, understand that God will repay. Vengeance belongs to God, but we are not to take our the law in our own hands and enforce vigilante justice. This had become a common thing in that day. And Paul says, no, as believers in Jesus Christ, you are not to do that. You're to understand that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Does that mean if the guy comes into my house in the middle of the night to rob me at gunpoint and I think he's going to harm my family, I'm not justified in defending myself? I'm absolutely justified in defending myself. In fact, in the next chapter of Exodus, God's going to deal with that and says, if it happens at night and you kill him, you're justified and acquitted. But if it happens in the daytime and you kill him, then you're going to have to go to court and defend yourself. So God establishes authority for our peace. Then Paul, now look at this. Now remember, when the scripture was written, this was a letter. It wasn't written with chapter and verse. So Paul says, don't repay evil for evil. Do not avenge yourselves, brethren. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Therefore, and he quotes, he quotes the Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There's laws against murder, so trust the law, the system of justice to take care of the murderer. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will, be, will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For for he is God who ministers to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. If I go out 
and retaliate in kind against somebody before the justice system has a chance to operate, guess who's going to find himself in the justice system answering to the law? I will. And it may be that that guy got exactly what he deserved, but you know what? God has placed his authority here. He's placed his magistrates, and they do not bear the sword in vain. And this is what Paul is doing. Paul's warning the believers, don't think because you have Moses saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's okay for you to go out and retaliate. God has put the authorities in place, trust the authorities, and trust God to execute his vengeance through the authorities. Because if you don't, that authority doesn't wield the sword in vain. You'll find yourself on the wrong end of that sword if you don't follow the authority. So what the law of Moses and what Christ both affirm is that God has established a rule of law that men are to submit to. It's not man's place to take vengeance or retaliate personally. God has appointed the governing authorities to execute his judgment. In the days of Noah, men did what was right in their own eyes. Imagine living in a culture where there is no authority, there is no rule of law, and each man just simply does what he feels is right or wants to do. God established the rule of law, but the rule of law cannot save us. So God didn't give us the law to be our salvation. He did give us the law to to bring peace, but he also gave the law, the entirety of the law, to show us our need for salvation, and salvation can only come by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a question that comes inevitably when we talk about this scripture in Romans 13 where it talks about obeying the ruling authorities the question always comes well what happens when the ruling authority becomes wicked and evil who's going to hold the ruling authority accountable and the answer to that is God does in our nation We still have laws, we still have a constitution that rules us, and so theoretically, men in authority who violate the law will be subject to that very law. But here's what we see throughout history, that God has judged nations and judged rulers in various ways. The American Revolution is a prime example. That was a judgment brought against a wicked tyrant. Don't have time to talk about it, because most people don't know real American history. They only know what the government school system teaches them, and they don't pay very much attention to that either. But history and the Bible are full of examples where God judged wicked rulers and wicked nations that abused their God-given authority. So is God still appointing authority today? Yes, he is. Is God still raising up nations today? Is God still raising up rulers today? Yes, he is. Is God still tearing down nations and tearing down rulers today? Yes, he is. He has done it throughout history. He has not stopped. Could God 
tear down this nation if it becomes so corrupt and so wicked? The answer is yes, he will. Not yes, he can, but yes, he will if this nation does not repent. Now, I don't know when that will happen. It might not happen tomorrow. It might not happen in your lifetime. But mark my word, God is not going to give America a pass when he gave no other nation on the face of the earth a pass, including Israel. There will come a time if this nation does not repent of her sin and her wickedness, God will bring judgment and it won't be pretty. So what is the answer? God gives us the answer. He gives us the prescription. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, he will hear from heaven and heal their land. He didn't say if the president or if the Congress, he said, if my people, who is God giving these laws to? He's giving these laws to his people. Who are they to govern? They are to govern his people. They still govern us today. This word is given that it would govern us. We're called to trust God, to trust his providence, to trust his provision, to trust his plan, understanding that we are part of his story. We exist for God. We were created for God. You are not your own. You've been bought at a price. If you belong to Jesus, if you confess to be a follower of Christ, you belong to Jesus. The Bible says you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You belong to God. Remember, we talked about this last week. Slavery hasn't been abolished. Slavery is alive and well in planet Earth. There's more slaves today than there ever has been in history. And God delivered you from being a slave to sin, but in saving you, he made you a slave to righteousness. That means you are to serve righteousness. You can confess to be a believer, but the question is, are you serving righteousness? Are you a slave to God, or are you serving yourself and your own whims and your own fancies? If you belong to Christ, you're not your own. He says, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. God established the rule of law for our peace. And the law reveals the wickedness of man. And the law was never meant to save us, but the law was meant to show us our need for a savior. And the rule of law has given us relative peace as we sit in this room today without fear. But men live in peace and prosperity, but that does not mean that they are saved. And the very law God has given us to bring us peace and to bring us prosperity should be the very law that shows us how necessary a Savior is. We would not have peace without God in any way. And you may live in peace on this earth for all of your life, but if you do not know Him and He does not know you and He is not your Savior, you will not have the peace that counts. That is, 
the eternal peace that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you have never trusted in Jesus, now is the time to trust in him because he and he alone is your peace.